and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny Jason Stark <laughs> is against humanity. Take away the human elements of Starkville. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville. Jason Stark. Uh, I write about baseball for The Athletic. As always, I'm joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer Doug Glanville. And Doug, we have a major development here in Starkville. We have a brand new evil mayor, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as we mentioned last week, uh, Mayor Cam apparently got impeached or something when we weren't paying attention. I don't know how that could have happened. Aren't we the only known citizens of Starkville? <laughs> well, um, as, I, as I've as i seen the pattern as a big Harry Potter fan, another defense against a dark arts teacher has been defeated. <laughs> and now, I don't know if we're up to Professor Umbridge or where we are, but we have to welcome in our new mayor. I Hopefully it lasts more than six weeks, but we are going to yeah. try to do the best to keep you here in Starkville. Yeah, uh, our, our new evil mayor doesn't really seem that evil, to be honest with you. He's, he's one of the podcast bigwigs around here, Tim McMaster. Um, so let's bring in our new mayor. Let's officially welcome him. Can we play Hail to the Chief, City of Ruins, whatever. <laughs> Tim, welcome to Starkville. Do you have any idea what you're getting yourself into? I am ready to do my best to fill the huge shoes that uh, that were here before. Camelina did such a great job on this show and helping to grow this show. And and um, Doug, you know, you make it very clear. I gotta, you know, look look behind my back here, and and make sure no one's sneaking up on me because this uh, this has been a short lived position. Uh, but we'll keep try to keep this Starkville in a great place and keep things moving forward as we are getting back to baseball, which is super exciting. We hope. On that note, now, you, you realize you are our third mayor in the last year, right? So, I, I, A, what have you done with Cam? B, how worried are you about that track record of mayoral longevity in Starkville? And, and C, what are your plans to spruce up Starkville? Um, I can tell you our infrastructure is a little shit. Yeah. We only have one street. Well, yeah, we gotta we gotta certainly put some money into the infrastructure and, and get things uh, solidified. <laughs> but no, uh, Cam's Cam's still here at the Athletic. Just for anybody that's concerned about that, Cam's uh, still doing great stuff on a lot of our podcasts. Um, he's just not in Starkville anymore. Although I think we should still probably have him back from time to time when there's a maybe when there's a Starkville street fair or something, he can come <laughs> in. But um, uh, yeah, we're gonna get we get some streets. <laughs> <laughs> But it's going to be a lot of fun, guys. I'm thrilled to be a part of this and to be doing what I can to help you guys out along the way. Thank you very much for agreeing to take this shaky position. Welcome. Welcome. And uh, I will send you a Starkville paperweight in the mail. That's actually the real reason that I took this on was for the paperweight. So that's great. So, Doug, you're going to find yourself in a place this week I know you've always aspired to be. You're going to be surrounded by members of the media wherever you look, <laughs> because this week on Starkville, uh, we're unleashing a reporter's roundtable. 
to try to make sense of the strange state of baseball right now. So, Doug, that means you won't have to deal just with the likes of me. Also, this week, we welcome back Ken Rosenthal and his trusty cohort in blockbuster story-breaking, the great Evan Drellick. Boys, awesome to have you. Ken, welcome back. Evan, it's your first time in Starkville. Has Ken offered to show you around? It won't take long. The, the, the digs look beautiful. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Jason. <laughs> okay. Ken, don't show him the rest of town, okay? Only the good parts. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. Uh, all right. Before we plow into the sorry condition of our favorite sport, uh, let's clear something up. You guys are the Woodward and Bernstein of baseball writing now, but just making sure. Now, which one of you is Woodward and which one's Bernstein? Well, that's a nice compliment, Jason, but it's a severe exaggeration. <laughs> I don't know that we're even one no. hundredth of those guys, but I don't know which one is which, but I will say this. And this goes for you, Jason. It goes for Andy McCullough, for Mark Quigg, everybody on our staff. The collaboration that we are able to execute is really not just better for the product. It's been something that's been... I guess really gratifying for me over the course of my time at the athletic, just to work with so many great people and it makes the stories better. And that's the thing, Evan and I, we are tough on each other. We, we fight over words, not fight, but we, we debate and we try all the time you know, to get to a better place. <laughs> and we come at it sometimes from different perspectives and it's really healthy. And it really, in my view, it has made things a lot better when it comes to what people are seeing. You know, Woodward is the younger reporter, but he's also the first on the byline. So I think it's got to go to Ken. <laughs> hmm, this, this is... Yeah, but I'm the older one by a lot. <laughs> hmm, this is interesting. Now, uh, the more important question is, Ken, who's going to play you in that future runaway hit, All the Center Fielder's Men? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Evan, who's going to play you? The guy who who plays Evan Hansen in that in that musical. What's oh, his yeah, name? Ben Everybody Platt. says I look like Ben Platt. Ben Platt. Ooh, people say yeah. I look like him. People often accuse me of being Pee Wee Herman. Diminutive <laughs> stature, so maybe he could play uh, uh -huh. as well. All right, if I sneak in there, I'm claiming Tom Hanks. Okay. Thanks. Uh... <laughs> nice. And Doug, we know you've got Eddie Murphy. There's a Dennis Quaid though look going on there. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah I, yeah, I used to, well, people used to think I looked exactly like Murphy when I was, since I was 12, it kind of grew out of it, but I think he, he had a headshot on the front of, I think it was Life Magazine or Time or something, and I used to carry it around because I was like, do I look like this guy? So that was, uh, yeah, Eddie Murphy followed me around for a good decade, 15 years, yes, my shadow. Wow. You, you know, I met Dennis Quaid. I have a tremendous Dennis Quaid story, but th this is not the time for that. <laughs> all, right, all right, guys, let's get down to business. Uh, after all these months of fighting over money, the baseball negotiations from hell are finally at the finish line. And once again, uh, that song we've been playing on this show sums up how this went. Uh, Mayor Tim, do you have the uh, Groucho Marx salt teed up for us? I don't know what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. I, I think that summed it up well, right? <laughs> In other words, they spent three months fighting. 
And then naturally, because this is baseball, they still don't have a deal, <laughs> but they're going to try to play anyway. Right, just play anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I, well, you, we could also update that, that skit because remember Hamilton, which, by the way, is coming out soon somewhere streaming. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite yeah. musicals, uh, it, probably my favorite. And um, yeah, so they have a line in there that says, you know, you don't have a plan. You just hate mine. So I always think we have to run that one in there. Yeah, really. All right, let, let, let's let's run through the basics first. Uh, assuming the virus lets them play at all, when would you guys envision the 60-game season starting? And uh, since you refer to this in your latest story to this strange season ahead, what do you think will be the strangest aspects of it? Uh, Evan, let's start with you. Well, if they want to have spring training July 1st or so, you're looking at a three-week spring training. So the final week of July, July 28th, something around there, maybe August 1st, that would be the beginning of your regular season. The strange part is you're going to have mediocre teams hanging around, a team that would have been easily eliminated in 162 games might have a shot here if they get out of the gate doing well. So just from the competitive standpoint, that's going to be weird. But the visual of these coronavirus prevention protocols that they're going to put in that that might be the strangest of all i would agree with that the fact that there will be no fans in the stands is going to be really odd and i know we had that game a few years ago in baltimore without fans for obviously entirely different reasons but the players who were involved in that said it was just an out-of-body bizarre experience and i expect to see the same here the one thing that is so intriguing about it if we get there and if we play to completion is the idea that every game will be worth almost three times as much as it usually is. They're playing yep. about slightly more than one third of the season. So that part is going to be very interesting. It's sprint instead of a marathon. And I look forward to that, but my concern still is how is this all going to unfold? And with the virus, will they even get it done? I mean, that that's a really good question. Uh, what are the chances that in the end, after all of this, they won't be able to play anyway because the virus will have other ideas? What do you think? That's entirely possible. I, I, I don't think there's any question that we could be looking at such a scenario. And somebody made the point to me last night, and I included it in my column, that if we were looking at a July 1st start, which was the original plan, right? Well, what just happened? Spring training camp shut down on June 23rd or whatever it was. So there are going to be things that arise that we can't foresee, things that could impede the season from com being completed. And it's a real concern. And I don't know if you can ever really prepare for it. They're going to have these protocols. We get it. And everything's going to be done, I would hope, as safely as possible but there is still so much unknown here and unpredictable that it's just hard to know what might happen i just think it's uh it's scary as a player it's it's really scary and obviously the whole world is scared to a large degree but now you have real evidence of how it can infiltrate your camp even with all the precautions i was listening to jim salisbury uh out of philadelphia and he was talking about how, you know, they, they did all these precautions. They cleaned, they sanitized, you know, they did all they could humanly that we could address it with all that unknown and, and still had all these problems. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how you get out of the gate. You're going to have people coming from all over the world. 
to different cities where, where states have completely different protocols and rules and some are loosened, some are tightened, some have spiking, some are declining. I mean, it just seems inevitable that someone, something is going to get into that mix. And, and when you start feeling that pressure with your family and their safety, uh, you know, I just think this they could try to manufacture the greatest 67-page health protocol on earth and, and still just have all these wild cards. Uh, I'm, I am curious. The part that I'm kind of excited about is if, it, if there is a 60-game schedule or 50 or whatever it turns out to be, um, the, the idea that you know, Dusty Baker was on our podcast about, about a month ago, and he said it's interesting to think about a sprint instead of a marathon. And like you said, these teams all of a sudden that could be out of it over the long haul may just have a shot. You just have to be hot for two months, and you know you could be a world champion. So that part could be really good if, if baseball is very creative about how to make it interesting and innovate keep the fans engaged uh, you know to me that's there's an upside to that this is why it's important that they actually got to this point because there's that old cliche and maybe Doug has used it at some point control what you can control the only thing that they can control here is getting back on the field now granted you can argue they didn't make their best efforts on either side to do that but they at least appear to be getting to that point and then once you're there there's nothing you can do it would have been a shame if the reason the season got canceled was because of something inside of their control. And once you get back out there, your guess is as good as anybody else's. Evan, such a good point, because you know, I've been saying for a while now that the economics really should have been the easy part of this. It was the part of this everybody could control in the game. The health and safety part is the part nobody can control. Only the virus is in control of that. And that's why I think this has been so frustrating for so many people. And look, you guys have been in touch with a ton of people on both sides since all this went down. How would you describe the feeling inside the game about where this mess ended up? Uh, Evan, let's start with you. Uh, Honestly, I would defer to Ken on this one because he just wrote a a column that went up today uh, about this topic. But everyone seems frustrated because in isolation – in a pandemic, these issues should be resolvable. The problem is you've had this backdrop of years of animosity, percolating disagreements, and really loud rancor that's been there. This isn't new where Tony Clark and Rob Manfred have been at each other's throats publicly. What is new is that it's been as central an issue as A, what players are paid, and B, how many games are going to be played and whether we have a season. So the instinct to try to look at this in isolation I get it, but the problem is neither side looked at it this way. It feeds into what happens next year. So to the outside viewer and, and people who you know, aren't really wrapped up in all those other dynamics, it's frustrating. There's no other way around it. And it's frustrating simply from a coverage standpoint, Jason, and we've talked about this, to see these two sides unable to separate themselves from their recent histories and from the – dysfunctional relationship that has grown over the years mostly in my opinion because of the owner's actions but at the same time here was an opportunity and jason we wrote about this there was an opportunity to do something really special here bring the game back july 4th get a month-long head start on every other professional sports league show baseball again to be a special 
kind of professional sport, one that is a social institution and takes its responsibilities seriously. And that was blown. And a lot of people inside the game understand that it was blown. And a lot of people inside the game felt almost powerless to stop it. And that is a really poor commentary on where the sport is. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's been the history. Yeah. And, you know, although this ended up and they're playing, in some ways, this was better than some of the history that baseball has. That's what's kind of scary about it, right? I mean, you think about lockouts, <laughs> strikes, injunctions, court orders. I'm sure they'll end up in court over this. But they did a lot of this without having baseball at all. Uh, and World Series was canceled. I mean, think about the players, you know, as a, as a player coming in in the mid-90s to 2000s, I was very aware of that history. And some of the old guard was, was still there transitioning who had done all this, the 81 strikes, split seasons. And, you know, all that was part of that legacy of this dysfunctional relationship because every inch that's gained in labor has been through dispute. And so the, the 25 years we've experienced, quote unquote, peace, uh, you knew something was percolating and there'd be always certain moments or pushes to test the resolve of this sort of this peace mission that's been existing for 25 years. And now, you know, I was at the executive subcommittee when Tony Clark was there way back. So he's been involved in, in the union work from, from pretty much day one throughout his career. And now in this position as a, kind of a player perspective, but it, it always ends up in the courts. It always ends up in some legal battle. And that's very slow. And when you're so obsessed with each other and you're in this insular negotiating room, and you're also, quote unquote, sticking to sport and your, your sort of domain, then yes, you are completely oblivious and unaware of what the world's dealing with. Even though it's in your face, you're not actually seeing it. Just like with PEDs. We, yeah, it, was, it was very clear this is wrong and this is not. But it was still so much about owners and players and giving an inch and taking a mile that you just don't actually see the larger implications. And they're just kind of repeating that history. And I'm not sure when that changes. So I guess I pose to you, gentlemen, what do you think would change this culture? What do you think it takes to change this culture? Honestly, new leadership. And I would say new leadership on both sides. And I say that not believing any of the top people, Manfred and Halem on the management side, Tony Clark and Bruce Meyer on the union side. It's not that I believe they're incompetent or unintelligent or incapable. What they are, is incapable of working together. We have ample evidence of that right now. Now, is it realistic to expect that the union's gonna flush out Tony Clark and Bruce Meyer and baseball's gonna flush out Manfred and Halem? No, it's not realistic, most likely. But I cringe at the notion that these four guys are gonna be negotiating again a CBA in 2021. It's mind-boggling to me that that can happen after what we just saw that display. So that to me is really where it starts. I don't expect it's going to happen that way. And beyond that, and Evan, you can speak to this too. We hear all the time about a partnership and the partnership that needs to form. I think we can all agree on that. Baseball, MLB says, well, we don't have a salary cap, so we don't share the revenue, so we can't really be a partnership. That is baloney. They certainly can do a better job than they've done in the recent past. And they certainly have to Figure out a way to stop the bickering and the fighting and the endless finger pointing and get to a place where 
it's somewhat of a truce. It's never going to be a perfect harmony situation. It shouldn't be. That's what management and labor is. They're not in the same boat together for the most part. But at the same time, they could do a lot better. Doug, you just said something that, that was interesting, pointing out the fact that there's always a dispute that brings us to some sort of change, that, that every time basically that there's been gains for, for players, it, it would seem, it comes with a dispute. Is it the case that it has to be that way from both sides, right? It, it certainly historically has played out that way. But does that suggest then that the only way for players to basically push forward their position, if, if, if it's true that the only way players get something done is by fighting, where does the blame essentially fall for that? And, and what does it say about management? And I don't know if Doug has, has, has a good answer for it, but that's, that's, that's a heavy thing to think about, that if the only way players yeah. get somewhere is by fighting, where does that leave us? I mean, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think part of it is the it is the legacy. I mean, and the, so much of the structure around baseball is is literally through the legal lens. It's it's a legalistic uh, d- debate, and how far can you push this to reach an impasse? And then you and they're going to do the same thing: file a grievance, not operating in good faith, let the courts decide. I mean, it's it's at least this time they're going to do that co- concurrently, right? Some some way that you can still play ball, right? But there's a, you know, that, that history has been there. And I don't know how you get away from that culture of, of constantly working in this, in this conflict, in this position of conflict. Uh, but, you know, the trust is not there and giving an inch means always taking a mile and, and you, you have that sort of stature from jump. And, you know, the, you think about Don Fear for a second or that, that my era, Michael Weiner towards the end, uh, Don Fear didn't bother with the media didn't really bother. And then he could control the message. He could say, well, I'm going to talk to the player reps and we were the messengers and we all got together and then everything kind of filtered through us. But now you have social media and you have situations like sign stealing where players will actually attack other players and not as seeing it as fellow constituents so much as like, I I have to have a moral stance here. That's really different. That opened up the door to how difficult it is to keep everything in-house. But overall, Don Fear was like, well, I can't win in the media, so I'm going to make a legal case and I'm just going to educate my constituents. That was his approach. But it's not it's that simple anymore. You can't really keep that under wraps. So it's much more uh, you know, out in the open about these opinions and trying to keep everybody in sync. And so I still think in this case, most for the most part, the owners were still kind of going that direction in leaks or whatever, and, and the players were still kind of you know punching here and there. And so much happens, even in the worst case scenario, behind closed doors. And, and I wish they would get out of the public domain until they get to a level of, of, of unity. Because in the end, especially what we're facing with the pandemic, you need to now create a unified front for what the world is now watching. That How's that going to look when it's so awkward and contentious when you actually need all the unity you can get when you're facing something like a health crisis? Mm-hmm. Let, let me jump in here. I, I want to ask you guys about baseball's new voice of reason, Trevor Bauer. <laughs> he, he he used uh, social media uh, to uh, to say many things. Um, and look, we know players took a stand by saying no to that final offer. 
But obviously, not all the players were happy with that stand. And let me just ask you about some of the stuff that he said. He talked about doing irreparable damage to our industry. He talked about how we drove the, this stuff straight off the cliff. Uh, I'll be suing him, by the way, for stealing my <laughs> right. cliff analogy. And, 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 and then there was this. This was a tweet. Um, he said, we gave up shares of playoff money, eliminating the qualifying offer for 2021. Paycheck advance forgiveness, COVID-19 protections, and protection for non-guaranteed arbitration contracts for next year in order to hold on to our right to file a grievance? And he had a couple of thinking face emojis. So, Ken, let me ask you, how many players do you think Trevor Bauer speaks for? That's a great question. Now, we do know one thing, that the vote of the executive board yesterday was 33 to 5 to vote down the proposal that the owners had made. So clearly people who think like Bauer are in the minority, but it's difficult to say exactly where each player stands. We don't know. We never hear that exactly. There's 750 of them. They all have different opinions, right? So actually there are 1200 when we talk about the union membership. So I don't know how much that reflects the larger body it would seem not based on the way the vote went but there are a number of people who do agree with him and a number of people i've written about this i wrote about it again today who have questioned the union strategy and whether ultimately it will be the best thing for players now the grievance who knows somebody wrote today and i wish i had mentioned this as well that this does at the very least possibly create leverage for the union that's assuming that MLB takes it seriously, the grievance, and doesn't think it's a route. And some people on their side do think it's a route. But at the same time, MLB can file a grievance. So where is this all going? Who knows? And my point all along with the players, I get exactly why they did not want to cut. And it was a good fight to fight. But they could have ended up with more materially in any number of combinations, any number of ways. And I'm not sure that wouldn't have put them in a better position. It's, it's hard to say. I, I understand the principle involved and the union really has always been about principle and it served the union well, but long-term, I don't know that this strategy is a winner. Yeah, Evan, what do you think? How many, how many players at what percentage of ownership wanted to make a deal here and that never happened? Well, the the high level question in this is: Should the players accept something if it makes them slightly better off, at least in the present, even if it means giving up something that is ultimately of greater value to ownership? And I think that's something that plays itself out and has played itself out historically. We saw it even what is it a couple months ago at this point with with the draft when owners offered 10 rounds and that would have paid players ultimately more total money if they had taken the 10 round draft but they rejected it because it came with other concessions that they they valued to be higher And, and in this case at least the union believes that the grievance is not the thing they are not doing this for the potential of a grievance there is value in the potential of the grievance, but it's more that the concessions they would be giving up, the value of the expanded playoffs, 
the transfer of more than $50 million from a joint fund between the union and the league to a commissioner's fund. Add it all together, the uniform patches, that it was just an imbalanced deal when they weren't going to get as many games as they wanted and they're being paid on, on a per game basis here. So naturally in a membership group as large as the Players Association, you're going to have people who take up any stance that you can imagine. You're going to have all those deferring opinions. But as Ken pointed to, the, the best hard evidence we have is that vote. And as I understand on the player calls that the union has had, it's you've had players who've been even further to the right of where everything has come down. Players who didn't even want to come back with certain counter proposals. So by and large, Trevor Bauer seems to be the minority. And also keep in mind, just to amplify what Evan's saying, they got 60 games full prorated without making an agreement. And if, if they felt that they were giving up too much, well, then it didn't make sense for them to do that. It's just, the agreement would have also produced some other things and goodwill, if you want to call that for lack of a better phrase, would have been one thing. It would have showed that they could make a deal and maybe push them forward a little bit. And there were benefits. There's no question there were benefits. Now, how much the benefits would have served them well, that's always a matter of debate. So it becomes a situation where they felt that it was better not to have a deal. And that is, that's bad. Negotiations are about getting a deal. Arbitration, the entire system, is set up to get deals. Now, it doesn't always work that way, but that's how it's supposed to work. And in this case, they failed. Both sides failed. Well, and it was a, it was a non-starter. I mean, you think about uh, this the trajectory of this, this sort of negotiations. Once the owners came in with a non-prorated offer, they, they there was already a non-starter territory because. You know, that March agreement, which, of course, is debated about what they actually agreed upon, uh, was talking about prorated. Now, the owners fractured it. Well, we, we, you have not going to have fans and we can ad- adapt it. But that starting point and then finally getting to this prorated agreement at the end, I mean, that was clear that that wasn't going to go anywhere. And so you, you spent a month messing around with that when that was a non-starter. Anything that's going to look like a cap, a discount or giving back money that have already agreed upon they they know that's not going anywhere. So that was a sort of waste of time. I mean, that was just a stall tactic yes. to keep things going. And and so, you know, that, that's why it took so long. And and like you said, with Bauer, that's a case in point of players feeling, you know, other feelings about it and still going public with it, which is why it's so tough now to really keep that cohesiveness. And that's why 2021 is going to be like 10 July 4th fireworks shows. It's not going to go well. <laughs> Well, you know, I'll tell you one thing that uh, people uh, on ownership side have been telling me now over the last couple of weeks. This is their big fear now about 2021. You know, if you think back to the last labor negotiations, it didn't feel like there was any issue that players were willing to strike over, absorb a work stoppage over. Now look at them. Look how energized they are. Look how vocal they've been. Look how um, how unified a front they have presented to ownership. And if that's the climate heading into 2021, how worried are you guys about where that's going to lead us? Well, first of all, that's a long way away. 
keep in mind, we've got to get through this season, see what happens. Right. <laughs> we've got to get through True. an off season and see what happens there. And that's likely to be, as we've all written, ugly for players. It would have been ugly probably with an agreement. It's certainly going to be ugly without an agreement. And I'm not sure the player's disposition will be what it is now when they're looking at more economic distress, right? True. So that's going to be the challenge to keep them together. And maybe, maybe this will create a situation where it's almost easier to keep them together because they'll be so unified in getting what's theirs. And again, the owners taking it to them and they, the union and the players feeling that that is wrong. But this is the thing. I don't know how this strengthens them for 21. Yes, they're unified. And it was actually cool to see them back the way they were back in the 1994-95 range where the players finally were paying attention. But, again, I just don't know where it leads. Uh, guys, at this point, we need to let Ken go. I can't remember if that's because he needs to do some actual reporting or he wants to go grab that free dessert at the Starkville Diner. We've been promising him. <laughs> but Ken Evans is going to stick around, so he's our favorite anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But seriously, uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, we're wearing you out here in Starkville. Thanks, guys. See you, Kenny. Yep. It looks like baseball is finally coming back, and what better way to get yourself ready for the upcoming season than with a dugout mug, a company started in a college baseball dugout, hence the name Dugout Mugs. The barrel of a baseball bat turned into a 12-ounce mug licensed by MLB, your favorite team laser engraved onto a birchwood baseball bat barrel mug. Perfect for the big game, to put on display, or to be the life of the party. Unique gift for a baseball fan. Go get yourself or somebody else a dugout mug. Looking for a Father's Day gift? Did you forget to get your father a gift? You can still get him a dugout mug. Go to dugoutmugs.com slash theathletic and use promo code MLB30 for 30% off your first purchase. That's dugoutmugs.com slash theathletic and code MLB30. Fill that baseball void with your very own dugout mug today. You know, Evan, I, I want to pull back the curtain a little bit and ask you this. What's it been like to cover a story like this? Uh, you know, we, we all get into sports ready to cover sports, not labor negotiations. But that isn't always how it works out in real life. This is another example of that. So what will you remember about covering this particular set of negotiations well you know the irony is I, I started in this business of baseball role at the athletic basically a year ago with kind of an eye on uncovering these topics I, there's something wrong with me who, who would want to do this but but that was the intent but it was but it was never with the thought that in 2020 we would get to this kind of discussion everybody always thought that well maybe 2021 will, will be interesting and it'll certainly be worth you know additional did, dedicated coverage i told a friend recently if i if i got a tattoo it would it would say economic feasibility and <laughs> it feels like every yeah. single night has been the exact same in the last couple of weeks where we'd get some news later in the day and in the next five or six hours ken and i would go back and forth reporting it out sending versions to each other and by midnight or or 11 o'clock we have a story posted that's just when it would naturally end up getting done and and the days are all blending in with each other. I was convinced that this thing was going to be over when Tony Clark said, when and where, go ahead, league, implement your schedule. I thought it was over. And then we have all these twists and turns after that where Manfred backs off 
on the 100% guarantee that he made just a few days before. And I looked back last night at the first story Ken and I wrote about the looming economic fight here, just because I, I wanted to see what we had said then. And I, f- I felt good about the fact that we were on top of the fact that this was coming. It was from April. And it feels like it was two days ago. I, I, so, I, you know, it, it's a bit of, this isn't hard labor. Let's not make any mistake about it. But um, it's a little mind numbing the way this has spiraled out. Yeah, it's a carousel ride. The carousel never stops, right? It never, it never lets you off. <laughs> the music never stops playing. It just keeps going round and round. Uh, it, 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 it's a crazy thing to be in the middle of. Um, let me ask you this, Evan. You know, we hear a lot of people out there complaining, for example, this has gotten way too public or there's been too much leaking. And you realize that's because of you, right? Like, well, you know, me, me too to a smaller degree. But do you ever feel like people like us have been almost aiding and abetting a spin campaign or, or really dueling spin campaigns? I have some... I guess, higher level thoughts on this. I, I, even when I was doing team coverage, I, I always thought it was strange that people would advocate, oh, he should, he should just shut up. He should, he should stop talking to the media on a few different levels. One, just from a media standpoint, certainly it's better if people talk. There's no question about that. But from, <laughs> from a human interaction and how you want to live your life standpoint, I would rather know what is going on. I want people to be truthful in, in, in some way it bleeds into the discussion about Rob Manfred as compared to Bud Selig. Bud would put on this veneer of uh, everything for the good of the game. And, and surely he believed all of that. Whereas Manfred is just much more direct and doesn't have uh, quite the same presentation that, that Selig does. But you know, my default position, I, I think it's the only way to approach this is that it's better to be direct, it's better to be open and out there. Is it possible that the end result of them being open and direct and you know, waging war in, in the public is that it complicates the negotiations? Perhaps, but on balance, I, I just I can't see myself stumping for people to do anything uh, quietly really I, I, of course there are exceptions <laughs> but I, you know i i want openness and honesty in my general life you know outside of reporting i want people to be direct so it you know it the point is valid i i just i would i would never be the one to tell somebody even reporting aside hey stop talking about something yeah of course i mean look it's it it's good for us in this business to have people talk to us it's good to know what what's going on from their point of view. We always have to filter it with the knowledge they want us to know certain things, right? They want us to put certain things out there. But uh, it's really bothered me to, uh, to read some of the story comments, uh, to be honest, and obviously the tweets that accuse people like you, Ken, me to some degree, of somehow being sellouts for one side to the other when we're just presenting information. We know stuff. We know how these sides think. It's important for us to let people know how they think. 
And because some of those people disagree with the information we're presenting, they somehow feel like we are selling out. And like that's that's where I always want to jump in and and <laughs> and answer those comments. I usually think better of it, but I mean yeah. that is something that that's a place we find ourselves all the time. And Doug, like you you know you you're in a little different branch of the media now. You used to be on the other side of us covering you. Tell us how you see that. No, that's a great point, Jay. I mean, the uh, player, uh, you know, from the player standpoint, when you look at the, through the lens of the Players Association, that history, as I mentioned back with Don Fear, was that you really didn't have a, a place in the media, uh, whether it was because teams were literally owned by media conglomerates. Or there was always this perception, and, and Don Fear was always like, I'm not going to try to navigate and negotiate through the press. So that, that, is, that's, that legacy is still there. That tone is still there about you're not going to get a fair shot or it's going to be the owners have the power. They may actually own these empires. Uh, so that, that's lingering effects of that has always created this imbalanced feeling. So some of that is part of you know, what the players also believe, right? The owners have all this power, they're billionaires, and they can, they can kind of set that tone. Uh, but but the, the reality now is looking at it from the perspective of covering the game and being able to sort of keep score as you go, yeah, you don't know how this game is going to end. You know, you, you hope it might end with the game healthy, but you also feel a responsibility to understand why the shift in negotiations have gone one direction or another. And although it doesn't give you that final, okay, it, it, it's like a biography. People make choices in chapter three, and then in chapter eight, you realize, oh, that's why, or this is why. And it's so hard today to get that perspective out there because it's so quick. It's 140 characters or less or whatever it may be. And, and that's why framing things in a moment uh, always sets up for that next moment to have to kind of reframe it. <laughs> and and it, it's, it's difficult to get at what's exactly driving, you know, driving the car here. And, but that's where we are today in social media, speed of information. And just like you said, players are, are part of that now where they're actually sending out their own storylines. So it's confusing, but the real time is, is actually very significant. I want to ask both of you about this aspect. Uh, I actually wrote about it a, a, a few weeks ago. It could have been a few months ago now. I lost totally lost track of time. But about how I felt like during the whole Astros mess that players found their voice. We heard them. We saw and, and read what they felt in their hearts on social media. And I think we've seen that to some degree again. Uh, again, this is for both you guys. Do you feel like we are seeing players find their voice in a way that we've never seen before? I, I totally do. Um, at least that I've never seen before. And, and I just, I was too young, frankly, in, in 94 to remember how it looked in the papers and obviously no social media then, but you know, I, I've, I've remarked to people in the industry in, in, in recent times, and I, and I know I'm not alone in that, about exactly this point, that uh, guys, when I was doing beat coverage, it really didn't matter what the issue was. People just didn't want, and it, was, it wasn't even, I don't think, a, totally a judgment on me. It, it was just, what, whoever the reporter was, very rarely would guys speak up, you know, it, it, about anything. 
it, it was a culture in baseball where people just wouldn't talk. And, and it goes back to what I was trying to say a, a little bit earlier with um, how, you, how you want to conduct yourself, not just with media, but in general. I appreciate people who are open and, and speak their mind, regardless of the fact that that benefits my profession, right? And, and so on that level, on that basic human level, I appreciate that players are putting themselves out there. I don't think change in any regard in this world comes. And, and boy, is that a sweet and naive statement. But I don't think change comes unless people talk. You know, it, it's that simple at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, and, and Evan, I mean, that's a great point. I, I think I would say vis-a-vis baseball is a couple of big watershed moments. And one was absolutely the Houston Astros. Uh, because at first, for me, my history, it was a little cringeworthy, like, wow, look at these players going after players. And, you know, because you think about PEDs, you know, it didn't really happen for a, quite a while later. But the, the, the way that they attacked and said, no, you know, this is wrong, it showed like a moral stance and a willingness to sort of address that. Uh, so it showed that willingness to engage. They said, okay, no, this is wrong. And I, and I always look back at the being part of the executive subcommittee in the union during the PEDs. And I, and I do have some regret about not you know, finding a way for us as a body to openly state we, we believe this is wrong. And then fine, you have to work it out legally and behind the scenes, but a real unified position to talk about where we actually stand on a value system. And I remember the line I think Don was talking about about like testing without cause, right? Well, why are you just testing people you don't have cause? And that's something that all of us kind of said, we understood from a, oh, they might, you know, give them inch, they might take a mile. And and it sort of lost the ability to take that position from a sort of belief system. And so coming forward, it's good. I, you know, I look now, I say, okay, that was a little cringeworthy because of my history, but it, it's something that was empowering to these players to speak. And then COVID-19, like the pandemic, is another big moment for sports across the board because it did two things. Players use their platforms to engage on safety and what they're experiencing and to keep people engaged. And it was all these things. And it was also kind of a hall pass for players to not just stick to sports. They said, well, you know, you know, uh, we, we understand now. It was kind of politically neutral in certain respects, as long as you stayed in this realm of, hey, I'm sharing what I'm working out. I'm doing these things. And so for a while, we became this like unified force of survival. And that opened up players to be able to just say, okay, I can talk. So when they got comfortable with those two arenas, now, yeah, it's all the gloves are off. Like we're going to talk and we're not going to wait for our player rep or filter it or, you know. And, it, and there's going to be challenges because of that. But I do think it shows that there's a real life and, and a dynamic you know, body of, of players that actually care about these issues intimately. And they can still create a unified front on the back end. All right. So, Doug, so what's the power of that? What's the potential of that? Because, you know, I think people even inside the sport now recognize this that what what do fans want more than anything else in this day and age they want access they want to know what these people think they might not agree with it but they want to know more about them they want to hear from them and leagues like the nba grasped that so many years ago and recognize that the, the more star-driven your sport is and the more personality-driven your sport is, 
the more interesting your sport is. Baseball's taken a long time to get there. Can this be a vehicle for baseball to get there? Absolutely. It's a 100% opportunity here for the players to really be humanized. I mean, I remember Jim Riggleman uh, would always say, play for the name on the front, not the name on the back. Right? There was always this. And there's something very noble and collective about that that's good because you're coming from all different backgrounds. You come to spring training and you're one body. And this is more important than self. So there's a selflessness. That's absolutely powerful. But what you do lose is what, you know, remember Joe Madden was on our uh, Starkville not long ago. And he's like, well, with the analytics, everybody's making one type of car, right? You know, everybody. So if you're kind of milquetoast and everybody's just like, well, we're all saying the same thing, you lose that connection and you lose the ability to make Mike Trout the star that he is on a certain level, right? So that human component is is what we could potentially gain here uh, by the access. And the other thing is, you talk about the aftermath, where you have our country with social unrest and these debates on race and identity. Uh, players now will feel a little bit more emboldened to say, hey, we can chime in on these things. We do care about these. And it'd be a lot more bandwidth to actually engage on that. So that is, to me, baseball's opportunity to create leadership and be part of the change. Because if you're going to change and be a cultural shifter, then you do need players to actually take the mantle also and, and work with you, which is why I, I'm concerned when there's so much tension in leadership. Because more than ever, on the field and off the field, they need to be connected and they need to work in a collaborative spirit. You know, just just real quick from a labor perspective, I don't know how owners in 21 and going forward now that they've seen what it's like when players band together on social media i don't know how they exactly can contend with that the argument would be that social media isn't accessed by everybody but if you have all your star players mike trout on down putting forth their view publicly i don't care if you had all 30 owners and rob manford out there tweeting People love their players, and to have that direct access now, one of the things the owners seem to underestimate in this whole affair we just went through was probably, frankly, player unity. It was strange how every offer they made seemed to galvanize the players, and I say strange from a perspective of why didn't the league see that coming? But now that we see how it plays out, when it comes to currying public favor, which is something every side is going to want to do here, the players now have a whole new game to play. And I think it's a game that they'll win hands down every single time. I don't see how the advent of social media will benefit ownership and management. Rob Manfred could talk to the New York Times. He could talk to me and Ken and Jason and everybody, all of us at The Athletic. I don't know that that's going to be more powerful than having all the stars tweeting. Evan, you make a fantastic point. I'm just going to say this. Um, what's been really striking is we now hear from players almost every day, right? Some players, are they're just out there every day weighing in on this and what matters to them. Do we ever hear from people on the other side? Uh, I mean, Rob Manfred has, has spoken publicly no more than a handful of times throughout the three-month period and and think about owners team presidents like i don't know about you evan but every conversation i have with anybody who fits that description 
the first thing they say to start the conversation is, we're off the record here, right? Um, <laughs> like, to, Do they have to change strategy in some way? Maybe you're right that they can't. Maybe they're powerless in this dynamic, but don't they have to find their voice too if they're going to combat the player's voice? It, it's notable to me that the I think the only – ownership types who went on the record throughout this whole thing and it's possible i missed somebody somewhere were bill dewitt with his flagship radio station ken kendrick diamondbacks owner with his flagship radio station and then randy levine the yankees president to i think several outlets at, at varying points and then you had manford do his uh, his espn uh interviews as well but it, it, it's a very small number that have put themselves out there and you know, reporters are kind of if you want to cover the story well you're almost forced to grant the anonymity in, in these situations the choice becomes yeah. well if, yeah. if i don't then I, I can't really explain what's going on and that's a, a kind of destructive self-feeding cycle that leads us to where we are today but yeah just from a purely grabbing the audience standpoint i think you're right the the owners might have to consult with an outside PR firm if, if they expect to do better in 21. Well, and Evan, too, I mean, the, the thing to consider also is, let's you talk about the legal, the economic, let's talk about taxes, right? Players are depreciating assets. I mean, that, that's a, there's a business component to that, depreciating assets. And I'll, and I'll sum it up in this one story. 1991, the, the day I got drafted. And, and so, Went through all the screening. I get there. The phone rings at like 1.15. The Cubs draft me in the first round. For a few days, they tell the world how smart they are, how brilliant this pick was. And I'm like, great. Of course, they love me. I'm wonderful. Yes, the first round. Everything's great. And then the negotiations start. And as soon as the camera wasn't on and we weren't like talking publicly, then I started hearing about all the things I can't do because they were negotiating with me. Yeah. They told me that Mike Kelly is going to have more RBIs than me. This guy's better than I am. I mean, that's the game. But publicly to do that, you're running the risk of damaging your assets. And I, and I hate to make it seem crass in a like your property, but there is a property component to this, an asset component to it. So they're kind of stuck because they can't say, well, you know, this guy's horrible. He's a, they can't go public with that. First of all, how do you then trade a guy? How do you, You're not going to damage that that sort of asset, so to speak. So you have to figure out this walk about not getting so personal in a way that you you lose the ability to add value to a player and who also may, by the way, be beloved in your town where you're playing. So they are, they are, they're, they're not going to win that social media battle. And it's interesting because for so long, the players didn't actually talk directly. Uh, the one time I remember when Todd Pratt, a teammate of mine, spoke directly to the media and had a criticism of, of uh, Don Fear and various things we were doing. And I called him the next day, hey, keep it in house. I, I understand, but you gotta talk. And I was like, hit, that was it. That was a big deal back in 2002. Now it's like, it's out there. So the risk on the player side is bringing everybody back when it counts to actually be unified when it's actually dangerous for the position to go out and say, I'm gonna just air my differences. Other than that, mm -hmm it's got to be really tough to win the marketing battle for the owners. Yeah. You know, Evan, I want to ask you one more thing. Uh, Doug, you just used that word damage a bunch of times. Evan, how much damage has this fight done to baseball? 
It's a tough question because I, I keep thinking of A-Rod and, and the way he's returned. I, I, the, <laughs> oh, no. But look, I think people... The A-Rod model again. I think at the end of the day, people are going to be excited when baseball comes back. As much anger and sadness as there there is in these moments, you know, if, if it was a full-fledged work stoppage or lockout of strike where uh, they, they actually cancel the season... I think you'd, you'd see a longer-term effect. And I think the question in that case would be how much economic damage is happening to the sport, both by fans turning away from it long-term and also just simply them not playing. Um, I, I'm inclined to believe that people will pay attention once the sport is back. You know, it, it's, it definitely makes people turn away for a time I, I just don't know that I'm convinced that it's devastating as it stands now because they will ultimately play well it's always better when they play than when they don't play I will agree with that uh, and I, I do push back when people say this is going to kill baseball I don't believe that but I, I, I do think that it has done damage that all right, maybe it's not irreparable, but damage that is going to take a long time to repair. I, I just know the people who I've talked to, who I've heard from, who I thought loved baseball and have cared about baseball passionately their whole lives and tell me they've worn me out. I don't care anymore. I really don't know how much I can care even when they come back i've had three months now to understand that when the weather gets nice i don't need baseball as much as i thought i did and i always feel like it is dangerous when you let people go out there and find they can care about something else if you give them that chance you know what they'll find that other thing to care about i hope they come back uh our livelihood to great extent depends on them coming back but i'm worried uh evan i like i can't latch on to a rod here as the beacon of light <laughs> i just can't do it <laughs> it took him a long time right I mean, it took him a while to kind of get it yeah and, and and you do worry that people will be intrigued for reasons that the game doesn't want people to pay attention like oh that guy sneezed in the dugout what does that mean i mean you're going to be there's going to be so much attention on the health and safety uh, if they even get out of spring training, you yeah. know, um, so it's, you know, and once again, when you have these frayed relationships at the top, that makes it very difficult because if they're fighting over things like that, oh, well, we didn't agree on this, you know, protocol, we should have added another two pages of the 67 page document, uh, that that's just going to be horrific. And, and they have to keep in mind, what if, if they don't play, then all you are relying on is goodwill. That's what you're relying on for 2021 or whatever it is. And that's a long way when you're facing a 2021 agreement, a negotiation, to stay in any kind of harmony given where we are. So uh, it's it's definitely concerning. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I finally figured out the one thing that does separate you and Ken from Woodward and Bernstein, Evan. Oh, boy. They never appeared on a single podcast. <laughs> 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 but but you guys have just given us a, a lot of time. I know you didn't really have. Uh, you, you could have been off doing some actual reporting and winning that next Pulitzer. So 
Ken's already gone off to chase his Pulitzer, but uh, Evan, th thanks to you, man, yeah. for, uh, not just for joining us, but for the amazing work you've done on this and every story. Doug and Jason, thank you. I hope we can do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Look forward yeah. to it, man. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Evan. Appreciate it. Let's take a quick break to talk about hydrant. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? We are suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com stark. That's drinkhydrant.com slash Stark for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com slash Stark. Doug, it's time for one of our favorite parts of every podcast, listener trivia. Our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in the show. We'll tell you how that works in a moment. Uh, we have to get this one wrong first. But first, here's our question. It comes from a listener named Joe Carbone. Uh, his Twitter handle is at J-O-R-A-C-A-9-6. And Joe asked a question that really got me thinking, because I know I should know this. Uh, and he asks, uh, he, he was an intern at this independent ball team last year, he told me. Anyway, here's one. Here's the question. Here's one that stumped an entire indie ball clubhouse, including former teammates of these guys. Oh, no. His question there are six active pitchers who have thrown multiple no-hitters. Who are they? Now, you should know, Doug, I've been in touch with Joe since we selected his question. Uh, he didn't phrase this one quite right. He actually meant there are six active pitchers who have started multiple oh, no-hitters, no. which I take it to mean they didn't necessarily also finish them. Uh -oh. So, you got it? No, um, just, okay. just a curveball. Yeah. All right. Right. Now, look, I... You know, I do a lot of no-hitter trivia myself, so I know Max Scherzer's right. Okay. I know Jake Arrieta is right. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I know Justin Verlander for sure. Yep. Uh, the st I even know the stumper. Homer Bailey is the stumper. Ooh, he threw he threw two in a row. He, <laughs> amazing. Okay, so that's four right off the bat. We just need two more. Okay. And so I've been agonizing about this. Um King Felix, I, I feel like he's done this. Uh, Annabelle Sanchez, Ooh. I think he pitched one, oh, and then he started a combined no-hitter. Uh, Cole Hamels, I, I, yep, I'm, a, I'm not sure I remember him starting a combined no-hitter, plus the one he threw at Wrigley. Yep. Uh, okay, Clayton Kershaw down, Ooh. Mike Fires down. Ooh, I, I'm going to guess Fires. Cole Hamels and Annabelle Sanchez is my last two Ooh. what do you got wow those are good all right so since we're putting our heads together can i pick the other two because i so, so i threw out <laughs> this is our new strategy i like yeah. this so i all right Just i didn't have sanchez and fires and you, now you went with hamels and sanchez 
Yeah, because I, I had Arietta. Ooh, Kershaw. Ooh, that's the one. So, yeah, of the left, uh, you know, I had Serzer, Verlander, King Felix, and <laughs> Fires. Why does Mike Fires? That sounds right. Okay. Um, man, Kershaw. I feel like that's a, is that a trap? So, King Felix, he's, he's considered active, right? I mean, is that, I guess. Oh, yeah, he's in the Braves camp. Okay, all right. There he was last time I had a camp. Kershaw, baby, he didn't do it. All right, fine. All right, let's go Mike Fires. I'm going to add Mike Fires and Felix Hernandez. Okay, so we got eight for the price of six. That sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. All right, I think we have a shot at this. Right. Let's bring in Mayor Tim for his trivia debut. We're going to find out just how evil a mayor he'll be. Uh, uh, mayor, did we get this right or wrong? I think you got it right because you named eight and <laughs> the six. So yeah, we by taking cheated. some extra shots, you definitely did get the six right with a couple of uh, incorrect ones there. Felix Hernandez only had one. So here's the six players, uh, active players with multiple no-hitters. Justin Verlander, of course, with three of them. Homer Bailey, the two in short order. Then you had Max Scherzer. Jake Arrieta doing it in 2015 and again in 2016. His were only eight months apart. And then uh, Mike Fires, uh, who you didn't get, oh. Jason, but Doug got. That was a, a great pick there. 2015 against the Dodgers. Yeah, 2019 yeah, yeah, yeah. against the Reds. Um, and then the last player is kind of the, the interesting one. It's Cole Hamels. He didn't finish two no-hitters. But he started two no-hitters. Here's the end of the, of the first All one, right. actually. It's one ball and two strikes to Phil Gosselin in the pitch. Out toward the right side, caught by Darren Ruff, and the Phillies have recorded their 12th no-hitter in franchise history. It's the first ever combined no-hitter by the Phillies. So I guess the next question is, who do you hug first? Hamels, Beekman, Giles? I think Palomar? it's a collective hug, Matt. It's a collective hug. There you go, the collective hug. So it was Hamels for six innings, yeah. and Jake Diekman threw an inning, Ken Giles threw an inning, Jonathan Papelbon finished it off. Now, Hamels' other one, the solo one, uh, was against the Cubs back in 2015. Yeah, and with the insane Odubel Herrera catch on the track where he spun around 17 oh, times. Right. Uh, yeah, that was, yeah, that was top. Tom McCarthy and Matt Stairs on the call uh, with the, Matt Stairs with the uh, the pivotal question there: Who do you hug after a combined? <laughs> and the answer now is nobody. You're not allowed to hug anybody. And if somebody does this, hug the cooler. Hug the cooler. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, one thing we try to do in this segment is use the trivia question to inspire a topic. For the show, and since we're talking no hitters, Doug, here's what I did. All right. I compiled a list of best active pitchers who have never thrown a no hitter. Let's go down the list. Ooh. You can vote yes or no. Right. This guy will throw a no hitter. Okay. Zach Grinky, first name. Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm gonna. I got no he's, on him. He's uh, so masterful. Yes. At some point. He is. Don't you feel like his? I've, like he's 36 now. Feels like his most unhittable days are behind him, and yet he was awesome in that yeah. Game Seven of the World game Series seven. till he wasn't. Uh, okay. So we we disagree on him. How about Chris Sale? Now he's out for the year with Tommy John, but nah. God, he like you know he, Chris Sale. 53 starts allowing three hits or fewer. I'm going to go yes on him when he comes back. Yeah, I'll say no. I think the injury, you know, he's just, he's kind of falling apart now. And 
yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's like my, my great pitcher, Steve Carlton, he got older and he was kind of hanging on with the Giants and it got, it got tough. The swing and miss started to, to go downhill there. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, David Price, what do you think? Nah, I'm going to say no. Fastball, yeah. attack mode. Yeah. He, he, yeah. He's, he just loves to live in the zone. Yeah, I would have said yes five years ago, not now. Uh, how about Corey Kluber? Ooh, Kluber. He's back, right? He's, I know he's banged up a little bit. Texas Rangers. Ooh, yeah, I'll give him a yes. I, I think he, he might do something. How old is Kluber? He's like 30, what, not, four? Yeah, I don't have it in front of me. Hold right. on a second. We're going to actually answer this question right, right. for a change. Well, I'll change my answer, <laughs> but, you know, figured I'd throw it out there because I was about to paint him as 38, but I think he's like in his low 30s, right? Curry Kluber is 34. All right, I had it. Okay. Yeah, I'll give him a, you know, Texas Ranger no-hitter. Yes. Okay, I disagree on that one. I, I would have said yes four years ago, not now. How about Madison Bumgarner? Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. I'll say yes. I think he could He could pull it off. He's still pretty young. And uh, he He's still only 30. Yeah. Uh, he's awesome. You know, he, like... There's no way you would take him out of a no-hitter. No, that's right. <laughs> right. Like, no manager would ever be able to do that and live to tell about it. But do you know that that uh, Madison Bumgarner, only 19 starts in his career, allowing two hits or fewer, and most of them were much earlier in his career. I'm going to go no on him. How about Jacob deGrom? Ooh, yeah, he's, he's awesome. All right, I'll say yes. He, he, he's got to win the most likely to throw a no-hitter and lose award, doesn't he? Yeah, he might lose. With, <laughs> if they have that runner on second base and extra innings, yeah, that's, that's got to be DeGrom. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect for him. Perfect scenario for Jacob DeGrom to lose a no-hitter. Uh, all right, finally, Garrett Cole. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> most unhittable pitcher in the game right now. Uh, you know, how about this, Doug? 20 starts just in the last two years in which he's allowed three hits or fewer 20 oh, times know. in two years. So he's a, he's a yes for us. Uh, all right. Now last week we spent a lot of time talking about Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, but guess what question we ran out of time to tackle. The only question that some people care about the PED question. And uh, here's a way we can talk about this. Um, I think I've mentioned the first story I ever wrote for The Athletic was about Mark McGuire. I just had him as a guest on my baseball story show on Stadium a couple of years ago. And here is what I asked him about PEDs. What if you had never taken PEDs? Could you have broken that record? Yeah. You're yeah. sure you could? Absolutely. Tell me why you think that. I just know myself. I just know. Yeah. I was a born home run hitter. I was a born home run hitter. I mean, um, unfortunately, I did. And I've regretted it. I've, I've talked about that. I know. I've regretted it. Um, didn't need to. That's the thing. Didn't need to. Um, but I know deep down inside, I know me as a hitter. And I know what I did in that box. And I know how strong my mind is. And I know what kind of hitter I became. And yes, yes, definitely. So, Doug, what do you think? Is Mark McGuire right? Could he have hit 70 homers if he had never taken PEDs? All right, I got to take a deep breath here on this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Seriously. Okay. So, 
let's just say this is kind of maybe the bigger problem of PEDs and what it did to baseball. It's the doubt, right? So I can't sit here and say what he could or couldn't or shouldn't have done. You know, I could say should have, but I can talk about, I don't know what he was capable of. And that's the point. You'll, you'll never know the answer to that question. And that choice created the doubt. But it didn't just create doubt for him. It created doubt for the entire game. And I'm not just putting it all on McGuire, all these players. And so you don't have the luxury anymore to say what you could have or couldn't do because that was the choice you made. And it's unfortunate because uh, maybe, yeah, maybe he could have. But you, you don't have that ground to stand on anymore. Just like, you know, all these other you know pitchers or bonds or whoever people who say well I I was I did it clean at this point but not at this point well how do we know that you, you've lost credibility and and that's why the currency of credibility and integrity is is so important because it it's it starts to leave you and affects everybody around the game and I was in the game and and look there's no question that Maguire Sosa that race uh, it, it, it just revitalized the game in a certain kind of way. I was sitting on, the, the you know, watching these guys take batting practice every chance I could. It was majestic to watch balls hit. Now, I, I wrote a column for the New York Times called Seeing is Disbelieving because there's part of you as a player that says that's not really possible, but there's always one or, co- or two players you come across just like, wow, they can kind of do the impossible. It just seems like you you embrace that. It's like in the minor leagues, when I started, I never saw guys hit opposite field home runs until I played against Manny Ramirez or Herb Perry or guys that just had pop that way. Now, Ramirez, we know his story. Uh, so so that's the, the problem I have. He, he, there's no way he could definitively say that because we don't know. And that's exactly the point. We don't know. I could say what I could do when I didn't take PEDs because I didn't take PEDs. I could, I could claim, you know, whatever happened, happened. But, you know, I know he said at different times that injuries were a big part of it. And I, I I get all the reasons. In fact, I've written a lot to sort of, you know, represent players who've taken it in some level of understanding about, you know, the insecurity and maybe coming uh, up in a scenario where you get hurt or you're leveling off at AAA. I, I do get all that. And it's not just simply greed. It's not simply just money. But there is an insecurity. There is an ego to it that seems to always follow that scenario. And then opportunity. And I have very direct evidence I wrote on ESPN.com recently about how these particular moments in PED history affected me directly. And it started me coming up as a rookie. It, it's affected me when I was losing my job as a veteran. And it affected me when I was going out the door with players that I was competing against or with that were either swirled in performance enhancing drugs or masking agents or whatever. So there's a direct line. And yet, you know, Mark McGuire, I recognize his importance. I do. And I appreciated him as an opponent. He was always kind, always friendly. I see him in the batting cage. He was always, you know, looking and talking shop. And and they, they both ended up being uh, stewards of the game in that moment. But history has not been kind. And, and just like everybody else, he doesn't get to rewrite history of what could have, should have been. He could have that opinion. And, and that's the point. He should have been able to do that. And he regrets it. But he cannot answer that question definitively because that opportunity never happened. And if I live my life through speculation of what I could have been, there's a lot of things that would have been different for everybody's life, including Major League Baseball, which, by the way, still feels the damage and effects of the choices of these players. So, you know, that's just going to be truth. 
That is so well said, um, because you're right. What happened in that era killed the greatest records in any sport. The home run records were the most romantic records in any sport. Um, The way that all those records connected the dots to Babe Ruth created a romance that far superseded baseball and baseball fans. Everybody knew those records and what they represented. And that is now gone. And, you know, you can actually watch this entire conversation uh, with me and Mark McGuire on YouTube. Just Google Mark McGuire baseball stories or whatever. But, you know, I pointed out to him, um, look, I accept you were a born home run hitter. I've watched you your whole career. I, I don't right. deny that. But how do we know? Uh, how many players have hit 70 home runs since baseball introduced testing and more significant punishment? That answer is none. How many have even hit 60? That answer is none. Shouldn't that tell us something? I think it does. And, and, and Doug, one more thing, because we had a related question from one of our loyal listeners who uh, he, who had thought this after last week and uh, sent us an email to starkvilleattheathletic.com. Uh, this is from Paul Aspen. And he said to us, he loved the conversation about the McGuire Sosa 30 for 30, long gone summer. But here was his question. What threatens the integrity of the game more? Juiced bodies or juiced baseballs? And Doug, it's an interesting question. I think he has a point. Has the Titleist version of this baseball skewed the stats just as much as PEDs? I mean, that's a great question. And and there's no doubt that when you look at the integrity, it, when it's when it's across the board, I guess you sort of see it differently. You know, because if, if we decide, like, you know, you have WWE, which is a hugely popular sport and they and obviously there's great athleticism there's also your choreography to it right and so if we decide that that's what we value as a sport then that's what the sport could become but we we went into the sport with a certain understanding about rules and fairness and equity and and so when you have certain players or with the sign stealing and, and the field gets tilted everybody has a, some some semblance of outrage about that and so with baseball i don't know like if they interject that like i don't know what happened year to year with baseballs and the humidors and but i know that that seemed to be across the board whatever it was and at least you're kind of competing on some semblance of level playing field even though it it shouldn't be what it is from a record standing that does destroy history on a certain level because you're not able to have these conversations anymore to say well babe ruth and you try to use wins above replacement but then you're wondering my whole era was was effectively juiced up uh, you know, the best analogy that I think of is I wrote an article years ago in honor of Sam Fold and about, uh, you know, he had, remember he had Super Sam and he had the Cape Knight in Tampa. And I, I think the lesson for humanity is this. Uh, the, the lesson that we tend to lose is, is Superman had all these incredible powers. He had this glaring weakness, and but he had a humanity to him that he actually sought, but he couldn't access that well. And that was frustrating to him because there's times he didn't even want those powers. He, there's times he would trade it for something more important. And and that myth of Superman of like everyone was trying to be Superman in this era. They were all, oh, let's do this and we want to do this. But then it actually diminishes what Superman means because of his seeking humanity. Sam Fold 
And the magic that he created with his glove was enough. It, it was enough to inspire because then all of us can look at him and say, wait a minute, this is possible. This is possible. This is within my grasp because he did it authentically. He did it organically. He left it on the field with everything he had. And so that is the, that's a better lesson for humanity to be able to say within what we have, what we are given, uh, what we're blessed with, and we use that to the greatest ability. We work hard and we do that. We can still achieve greatness and inspire people, not because we were supermen, but because we were actually human. And that's what was destroyed. It's basically letting Lex Luthor win. You're letting Lex Luthor win <laughs> instead of, you know, Lois Lane and humanity. And, and, and that's, that was the destructive force of PEDs and baseball. And we, and we should have done more about it. And, and we're still dealing with it. Uh, so I appreciate, you know, that question. I think it's a great question. Uh, I'm more concerned about the level playing field and like everybody, and not because everybody's juicing, but because, you know, we are trying to abide by the same rules and the same standards. And when that's lost, you, you lose the game. Well, look, he answered that eloquently. I don't know if you really addressed his question, but he did answer it beautifully. Here's the way I look at it, because I do think that this baseball is creating an issue, multiple issues. But here's how I would contrast it. I think the difference is this. PEDs killed the records of the game. This is killing the action in the game. Because of this baseball... Everybody's a home run hitter now. Everybody, right? You you, you look around it. Uh, I mean, the, the Yankees got 20 home runs from every position on the diamond last year, every single one, and that's where we are now. So I, I I feel like they're both a problem. They both affect offense and home run totals and all that, but in very different ways. And I, I you know, he makes the point that Joe Madden made, which is that if baseball really wants to fix the game, get more action back in the game, it really does need to address the baseball in some way. And the problem is they don't know that way. <laughs> okay. They cannot figure that part of it out and uh, good luck to them. All right. That's going to do it on this week's Starkville. Uh, let's remind you again that Starkville is now available in its entirety, absolutely free, everywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and follow Starkville on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, pretty much everywhere you find your podcasts. And of course, you can always find us at the Athletic app and the Athletic website. And if you'd like to read our entertaining work or the entertaining work of any of our amazing writers, I say this every week, but it's still true, there is no better sports writing being done anywhere these days than you'll find in The Athletic. So, And if you thought about subscribing, guess what? We can help you get 40% off. You just have to go to theathletic.com slash Starkville. Also remember, you too can be part of this podcast and achieve those 15 seconds of fame that we bestowed today on Joe Carbone. You just need to submit a great baseball trivia question. Uh, we'll then get that wrong. The good news is we will use your question to inspire a fun topic of conversation in this very podcast. And how do you submit those podcasts? Well, we have an email inbox for one thing. Um, 
We actually are now taking topic suggestions in that email inbox. You can contact us at Starkville at theathletic.com. That's Starkville with an E on the end. Or you can send in a question the way most people do. Hit us up with them on Twitter. Doug, how could somebody tweet at you? Yeah, piece of cake. Just at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. All right, I'm going to join this spelling bee. You can find me at JasonST. That's at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. Just remember to hashtag those questions. Hashtag StarkvilleQS. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellick for enlightening us. Thanks to our new mayor, Tim, for producing us and, of course, putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. We will see you next week on Starkville.